How do I know what I think until I see what I say? I'm your host, Jacob Goronsky, and welcome to From the Green Notebook, where we create leaders one podcast at a time. So if you don't feel like reading a blog today, then sit back and listen as we discuss some of the most important topics and talk with some of the most innovative leaders of today. So please subscribe and make sure you listen to these exclusive episodes. Today's episode is sponsored by Emblem Athletic, the best option out there for keeping your unit looking amazing with custom shirts, hoodies, and other gear. They're a veteran-owned business that specializes in making it easy for you. And if you've ever ordered unit gear, you know how difficult it can be. Emblem knows you have better things to do than design gear, collect money, and worst of all, sort through a bunch of shirts. Emblem takes care of everything, including, get this, free shipping worldwide. When it comes to something like a deployment shirt, you know you're going to have this for the rest of your life. So trust Emblem to deliver the best, guaranteed. Visit www.emblemathletic.com to get started with a free online store today. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to another episode of From the Green Notebook. First, again, I just want to start by saying thank you to our listeners. Thank you to our subscribers. From the Green Notebook continues to do well. And Joe and I cannot thank you enough and cannot tell you how grateful we are for your support. And we just hope that you continue to listen and you continue to subscribe. So we all encounter leaders throughout our lives, different types of leaders, sizes, shapes, forms, gender, and they all influence us in different ways. Some of those leaders really leave a lasting impression on us long after they're gone. Speaking for myself, and I'm sure Joe would agree, Brigadier General Steve Marks definitely falls into that category for us. He's a decorated officer, and he spent his career as a student of leadership, and even after 30 years of experience, continues to learn today and continues to work at developing himself. He represents many of the leadership qualities that Joe spoke about in our first episode. And as you listen to this episode, I think that's also going to become apparent to you. General Marks gets pretty personal in this interview, and he shares his feelings on creating the right culture, the right atmosphere, a culture and an atmosphere that can withstand and endure different leaders, can endure changeover. He talks about how to balance home life, work life. He shares his strategy on combining those aspects of leadership that are very important to the Army without compromising those personal values that are so important to himself. General Marks speaks to the fact that his responsibilities don't end when he leaves work because he is a husband and a father of two. He talks about not only mentoring from a professional level, but explains how important it is if we are going to raise a generation of great leaders, our efforts need to transcend both work and home. And General Marks really embodies that type of mentality. His career so far has been nothing short of spectacular. He started off in the ROTC program at the University of Missouri. He then went on to get two master's degrees, one from the Naval War College and one from the Naval Postgraduate School. He served in a variety of tactical assignments. He's commanded at all different levels in Afghanistan, has a Special Forces tab, Ranger tab, and is currently the Deputy Commanding General of the 1st Special Forces Command. So I'm so excited to sit down and talk to General Marks. And sir, if you could please just open up by telling us what leadership really means to you 
and how you define leader development. Hey, thanks, Jacob. I appreciate you um, sitting down with me, actually. This is a great conversation. A lot of things I want to discuss, particularly I want to discuss today a little bit about leadership, kind of how I define leadership. You know, the Army Doctrine, Publication 6, TAC 22, Army Leadership in the Profession, defines leadership as the activity of influencing people by providing purpose, direction, motivation to accomplish the mission and improve the organization. I've been in the Army now for 31 years. I've been an officer for 27 of those 31 years. I think over the years, I have matured. Uh, I've learned a lot. I've had great mentors and really great leaders that I spent a lot of time observing, both in garrison and also in combat. Folks like uh, general officers like General McChrystal, Stanley McChrystal, or Admiral McRaven, Bill McRaven, or uh, most recently, and my most favorite uh, leader is uh, General Scott Miller, who is currently commanding over in uh, Afghanistan, the Resolute Support Mission. I've been offered an opportunity throughout my last 27 years to witness them not only make decisions, but also create a culture, a positive culture, and a culture that is um, that withstands um, multiple commanders, but it also endures. So for me, leadership and the way that I define it, I kind of fall in line with uh a gentleman named Bob Chapman, who I have been following for the last maybe six or seven years. Uh, Bob Chapman is the chairman and CEO of a St. Louis-based Barry Waymiller. It's a uh, $2.5 billion global manufacturing business, and it has 11,000 uh, team members. Also, Bob Chapman was recently named as the number three CEO in the world in a Inc. magazine article. Bob is very intentional about using his platform as a business leader to, uh, to build a better world. But what Bob does is he defines leadership as the leadership is the stewardship of lives entrusted to you. And for me, that's what it's about. To be a leader requires us as to be income, become engaged, almost intrusive in our team members' lives. And those, and those soldiers who are in your command really becoming involved in their lives. And it requires a conversation. I learned that initially watching General McChrystal and the, his interactions with soldiers, very compassionate and empathetic. But it really became evident to me working for General Miller in Afghanistan of just how engaged he was as a leader and, and his personal interaction with our soldiers uh, every single day. He took the time, called by their first name and, and shake their hand and, and really when he shook their hand, it was more or less kind of he was checking them to see how are you doing and how you're really doing. And, and that was the moment that he used to gauge the, you know, how the soldier is feeling at the time. Because everyone knows when you are deployed, especially in a combat zone, there's a tendency, you know, your your feelings, your emotions are ebb and flow throughout your rotation. And General Miller took a more personal approach in his engagement with soldiers. And so I borrowed from him. I definitely borrowed his philosophy on creating a culture, a positive culture where, where everyone feels that they, they matter and that they know they matter. You know, one of the things that General Miller did that impressed me was he created a culture where every morning you would wake up and you, you almost couldn't wait to get to the office, that you woke up and you're, you're ready to get there and start working. But then when you're there, you feel safe and you feel like your, your opinions matter. And then when you leave at the end of the day, you feel like you've accomplished something greater than yourself. And that's what I took away from my, my time with General Miller. And, and, and truly, 
I've known General Miller since he was Lieutenant Colonel Miller and I was Captain Marks. And um, the general that you see now as a four-star general is the same general officer, it's the same Lieutenant Colonel that I saw back and met back in 2002 uh, in Afghanistan. The care and compassion and, and truly just empathy for everyone is what, and it doesn't matter if you're Afghan or, or, or American or part of the coalition, he, he always made you feel as if you are the most important person in that room. So I hopefully I've taken that away uh, and, and developed that over time. And, and that helps me because when Bob Chapman says that leadership is the stewardship of lives entrusted to you, that's the kind of passion I take about leadership. One of the things that I have used is I have these sets of 65 values and I have a, a, a stack of, of uh, cards that has 65 values. And, and when you open it up, uh, you find in there a blue piece of paper that says most important to me. And then underneath it is the next, uh, and it's green, it says least important to me. And then you've got the 65 values cards that are right behind it. And basically, for example, the first one, it's all in alphabetical order. It starts to say advancement. And then underneath it defines it. It is my commitment to take advantage of every opportunity to take uh, advance my skills, role, and position within the organization. And it goes all the way back to work alone and working with others. So the last one in the deck of cards is work with others. I have close working relationships with others in my organization. I value the wisdom and energy that comes with collaboration. So what you would do is you go through each one of these as fast as possible, and you pull off the the one that fits into the pile that says most important to me, and then you the ones that don't that are least important to you, you put that in, the, you put those values in that pile. Now, I've been using this for almost eight years. I used it when I was uh, a garrison commander in Italy with a lot of civilians that were in the command. Uh, it was a great way for me to, one, have a personal relationship with them, get to know them a little bit deeper, have a greater connection. And then I've used it also when I was the director of the, uh, of the J5 at JSOC. And I currently use it here as the Deputy Commanding General at First Special Forces Command. The Chief of Staff for First Special Forces Command, Colonel Ed Krupp, he is the Chief of Staff. So he takes, what he does is he'll counsel, provide expectation, have clarity and expectation for the staff. So he does the counseling and I do the mentoring. And so for each one of the directors, when you come to First Special Forces Command, each one of the directors and the special staff will get an a invite to sit down with me for about an hour and a half to two hours. And it's the opportunity for me to, one, become connected to them. One, they share themselves with me, and then I share myself with them. And we work through this exercise that I talked about with the 65 values cards. I use some of the trick, or I use some of the um, the same type of techniques that I saw Admiral McRaven use when he was the uh, the assistant commanding general at JSOC back in 2002 or 2003. I think it was actually 2003 when he was the one star. He'd called me. I had worked in the at JSOC and it, I was a captain at the time, a senior captain, and uh, was working in the J7 uh, shop and uh, directorate. And he had asked me to come by for an office call because I'd been in the command for uh, about 14 months at the time. And so, I, of course, I went to the office and, and sat down with him. And this is a person I've only met, maybe had met at the time, maybe twice, maybe three times. But as I sat down with him, he said, so Steve, tell me, uh, a little bit about yourself. And I, and I talked to a little bit about myself, but one of the things that kind of surprised me is he said, well, how's your wife uh, adapting? Uh, what does she think about the army and, and about the career uh, that you have chosen? And then he, of course, said, you know, how does Myra believe, you know, what does she think about this? And then 
She said, you know, he also said, you recently had a, a, a son, Hayden, right? And I said, yes. And, and he kind of knew almost everything about me. And that made me really feel at ease and almost to the point where I started opening up and revealing a little bit more about myself than I probably would have not revealed in a normal conversation. But because he knew so much about me, I was uh, very open to share my beliefs and really kind of where I envisioned this, where I saw JSOC and where it was currently, and then what I thought, you know, if I was king for a day, where I thought JSOC could go. As I walked out of the office, I was very surprised. So his administrative assistant was Tammy, and I said, wow, Tammy, that was probably the best conversation I've ever had. It's almost as if he knew me better than I know myself. And she revealed to me kind of, well, what he does is he has a card for everyone who comes in to his office, and it outlines, you know, your first name, you go by name, your last name, where you went to school, your spouse's name, your children, their ages are in parentheses, your, uh, you know, times in, in combat, uh, where you've served recently. It kind of goes down your old tire spreadsheet on your ORB and and your uh, officer record brief. And and so I was like, well, does he do that with everyone? He says he does initially, and he'll study it. And he tries to familiarize himself with everything about that officer or NCO when they come in for the office call, because it helps build a foundation for more of a personal relationship. And I use the same thing, Jacob, to be honest with you. I, I do the same thing when, when, my direct, when the directors come in, I have that similar kind of conversation to one, become more, more personable in my approach with the directors as they come in to get their initial mentoring session. We do the, do the exercise, the values cards. And one of the things that I do with the values card is as they go through it, they usually will have around, because it's 65, so they'll have around 35 values that are in the the most important to me. And then they'll have, you know, 35 values that are in the least important to me. And I said, okay, so good pile. Let's separate the least important to me and put those off to the side. Let's look at the the most important to me. And I look at the 30 plus or 30 cards, values cards. and, And then I say, well, Let's kind of look at your life because what you've done is you've ripped off 30 values that are important to you now. But what I want you to do is I want you to think about the end of your life. What do you want people to say about you? What do you want your spouse? What do you want your children, your grandchildren? And hopefully you live to a ripe old age. But what do you want your closest friends and your family to say about you? It kind of struck me when I attended the internment for Sergeant Ron Schur who uh, was 41 years old. Uh, he's a Medal of Honor recipient. I, I went last week up to to Arlington during the church service. Uh, his wife, Miranda, and their two wonderful kids uh, got up and they talked about her husband and, and the children talked about their dad. And then uh, Matt Williams, Master, now Sergeant Major Matt Williams, who's also a Medal of Honor recipient, was a teammate, a team member on ODA 3336, also talked about uh, what Ron was and, and what Ron stood for. And then also uh, after Ron got out of the army, uh, he went and joined uh, the Secret Service. And so his teammates from the Secret Service also talked about what Ron stood for, what was important about Ron, what Ron meant to them. You know, that's what I try to get the folks that sit down with me to think about is what do you want them to say about you? So as you look at those values, we've got to get it down to five. And I really want you to think about Five values that are you and you alone, and that you truly, in your deepest of heart, feel that these values stand for you. And they've got to be able to transition from the time that you wear your uniform to transition to another career field. And 
as you live your life to the ripe old age, these values have got to stay with you. And sometimes those values have to be aspirational. And so as I go through this exercise and as they start to think about the end and what you want people to you know, say about you, it all, I also talk about legacy. I said, what do you want your legacy to be? Because I said, the, the worst thing that can happen is as you make your, as you pass to the other side, is that, that all those dreams and all those things that you wanted to do or that you wanted to commit yourself to were never actualized, that you were never able to complete or even start because you were either never thought about it or you were uh, a little scared to, to take that risk, make that, that leap. And so I want you to think about what kind of legacy you want to leave behind, because I think we all have to be legacy focused. I think we all have to think about what legacy, especially as a soldier, what kind of legacy do you want to leave to your organization? It's important. And so I use those cards as a way to, one, get to know that individual, get to have a really good conversation. And then as they get the cards down to five values, then in that definition, it also talks about, you know, there's certain words, you know, for fitness, it says, I'm committed to being emotionally, physically, and spiritually fit. I say, I want you to go through and underline the key words that are going to make that value fitness, turn that into action. And so they will go through and they will underline those words. And then at the end, I say, I want you to now craft your purpose. What is your purpose in life? What's your why statement, as Simon Sinek would say? What is the statement that basically stands for who you are? And it's, it's got to be a statement that isn't only relevant for today, but also 15 or 20 or 30 years down the road. And so for me, and, and as and, you know, as the conversation, as I sit down with, with my fellow uh, teammates and I have these conversations, I say, so for me, it is uh, simply my five values are faith, family, serving others, humility, and loyalty. And then I say, I take those values and then I squeeze you know, those action words that defines each one of those values. And I squeeze it to a purpose statement for me. And, and for me, it's live a values-based life, totally focused on family, helping those who can't help themselves. And I said, as you see that, no, the Army's not involved in any of that statement. It's passionate. Helping those who can't help themselves tied directly into what I do as a Green Beret or what I did as a Green Beret. Special Forces 18 Series Officer, our moniker motto is to free the oppressed, de oppressa liber. That ties in perfectly because it helps me, especially in difficult times, reminds me of why I'm here, why I am one still wearing the uniform after 31 years, but also when I'm deployed in places like Afghanistan or Iraq, and I want to remind myself of why we're there. One, to protect our homelands, but two, to free the oppressed. And it rings true when I go out and I see our, our uh, Green Berets that are out there in these austere fire bases on the border of Pakistan and Afghanistan. And, and sometimes they do are frustrated. And they say, why are we here? And then I can say, you're here first to protect your homeland. But second, you're here to free the oppressed. Makes it more, for them, it, more relevant. And they know why they're there. General Marks, thank you for that. That was, I think you covered all of my prepared statements. So, um, but I didn't want to interrupt you at all because you were spinning gold there. So a couple questions to start off with. In our first podcast episode, we talked a lot about empathy. We talked a lot about the things that you just covered. And it seems like there's a shift in the military of how you should lead. Because I remember when I was, you know, a young airman in the Air Force, 
I never had that type of leadership where people would come up to me and be genuinely interested in you and your well-being. Do you see that shift? Is there a shift and why is that happening? Or have you always led like that and always had good leadership? Well, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I, I think I learned to lead like that because of the great examples that were set for me by General McChrystal or Admiral McRaven and, and definitely by General Scott Miller. You talk about your five, uh, five values that are most important to you. And you mentioned that those aren't necessarily... Um, I don't want to put words in your mouth. You said they weren't, um, they didn't have anything to do with the army, uh, the way you explained them. Have you ever, you know, been in a situation where that is, that conflicts with each other? And if it does, then how do you deal with that? Those five values are who I am. And so for me, by stating that up front, uh, when I have my conversations with the folks that I'm mentoring, they know that I am passionate about my family. They're, they know I'm passionate about serving others. And so for me, I stated up front, so it never conflicts with other elements or other environments that are trying to change who I am. You also mentioned fear that people sometimes may have that fear of taking that step or putting themselves out there. And we talked about that when it came to writing too, that authors, when they put their works out there, it's out for everybody to see. And there is a a kind of a fear behind that. So what message would you send to people about you know, when you're afraid of something, when to move forward, when maybe to ease back. Because fear can be a good thing too. How do you help people get over their fears of doing something as a leader? The one technique that I use is I have them, especially if they're if they're looking at something that they don't think they could do, for example, writing a book, I would um or to write an article or to publish something. One of the things that I do is, is I start talking about goals. You gotta know where you are currently. And then you got to know where you want to go. And that's why it goes back to legacy focused. Because at the end of my mentoring session, I talk about, okay, so now we've crafted your purpose statement. Now I I want to look at your one to three and your three to five year goals. I want to see what those goals are. And it should be intertwined with your purpose in life, what your statement is. The example I use is I've got a 17-year-old and 11-year-old boys. My youngest, almost every week, it seems like it changed what he wants to do when he grows up. Uh, my 17-year-old boy, he doesn't know what he wants to do. And I understand that. When, when you go into college, he's in his senior year. When you're going off to college, you really don't know what you want to do. So a little exercise I do with them is um, I take them into our back of our house where we have a closet. And I put a blindfold on my youngest son, my 11-year-old son. And I just say, okay, I'm going to spin you around. And I want you to walk out to the back of the garage. In the back of the garage, there's a a light. I want you to turn on the light that goes to the outside. You're going to turn on the light switch that will uh, turn on the light for outside. Is it dark at this point? And it's dark at the sun. And he's also blindfolded. So then he'll basically start, you know, laughing and giggling. He'll hit a wall or two and he acts like he's, you know, he stumbles around and he may hit the ottoman. He may may hit the wall and hurt himself. He may get bruised and and fall down a couple of times. But ultimately, he does get to that light switch uh, in the back of the garage. My oldest boy, I do the same thing. I, I put the blindfold on him and I say, I want you to start walking. And he says, where am I going to walk? Where am I walking to, Dad? And I said, you'll know when you get there. I'll, I'll let you know when you get there. And so he does it for a little bit. And, you know, 10 or 15 minutes goes by and, and he's stumbling around. He's taking a couple bruises and a couple uh, hurt his toe or, or, or hit his knee on the, on the door going out into the garage or out into the front. And then basically he becomes frustrated. As he's walking around, basically blind, doesn't know where he wants to go. 
And then he gets frustrated, he takes his blindfold off, and he says, this is stupid. I'm not going to continue to do this. I don't know where I'm going. And I said, that's the point. You don't know where you're going. That, that is a way for you, if you know where you're going, to get over fear. Because then you know that no matter what happens in your life, at least you've laid out a path. At least you know what the end result is going to be. At least you know what the final objective is going to be. That's why it's important to know what you want your legacy to be, what you want to accomplish, what legacy you want to leave on your organization or on your family. And so if you have those goals and you've outlined those and you put together a plan, because really, truly, goals without a plan are just dreams. And so if you don't have a plan also that's associated with that goal, then, of course, any type of speed bump in your life, any type of tragedy is going to derail that. But if you have a if you have a plan for it and you have a goal, you should be able to overcome any fear that you may have. So that's a great point and reminds me of the fact that there's no set way to lead. And we talked before in our, in our episodes about how you need to tailor your leadership style to some of your subordinates or those people that you're leading. And everybody has a different way that they need to be led. How do you distinguish what type of leadership style you may have to use with certain of your individuals? Yeah. So um, by sitting down with, you know, for me, sitting down with the directors on that one-on-one conversation, all of a sudden, not only have I revealed myself to them, but they're also revealing themselves to me. And you're able to identify in that hour to hour and a half of just a one-on-one conversation. Really, you're able to identify what their strengths and weaknesses are. You're also able to help them along whatever that goals that they have determined, you're able to help them along. If it's career goals, if it's personal goals, you're able to sit there and help them along. And you're also able to determine what kind of leaders they are and what kind of, are you going to have to take more of a hand-on approach or is this kind of an officer or an NCO that you're just going to have to provide them your intent and then they're able to um, move out and uh, accomplish the mission. So I'm trying to think of the right way to phrase this. If I came up to you and I was a young soldier or airman, do you ever discourage goals? Is there a point where you say that's not possible? And I'm, I'm kind of curious because as a young man, if you say, I want to be a, I want to be a major league baseball player. I mean, do you have that conversation that says, well, the chances of you being a major league baseball player are really slim, or do you just continually support their goals and help them create those steps to to reach that goal, whether you think it's achievable or not. Yeah, so I have that a lot of similar conversation with my youngest son, who one week he wants to be an NFL player, and then the next week he wants to be the NBA player, and then the following week he wants to be a uh, you know a golfer. And I, I remind him that experts have said and have shown that it takes ten thousand hours to become really good at something. And I said, if you're really committed to it, then you've got to get the hours in. You've got to do this. A great book uh, called The Talent Code talks about deep practice. And you've got to have the hours. You've got to put in the hours in order to become really good at something, especially at the, you know, at the professional level. And you think about that. How many hours have we put in as officers? How many years does it take to be really good and become competent at your job? General retired Jim Mattis, the former secretary of defense, in his book, Call Sign Chaos, Learning to Lead, he says, if you haven't read hundreds of books, you are functionally illiterate and you will be incompetent because your personal experiences alone aren't broad enough to sustain you. I would say you've got to learn. You've got to have a thirst for learning. You've got to be not only practice, but you also have to do a lot of reading. 
you have to dive into very difficult topics and develop yourself. A lot of the time you will spend for me on Google and on YouTube and also uh, reading books just so that I am more competent in my profession. And as I lay that out for my son, he realized just how difficult it is. But what I don't want to do is discourage his passion, his dream. But again, goals without plans are just dreams. So I've got to make sure that he is reminded of the fact that this is going to be hard work. This is going to require you to spend a lot of time outside when it's cold or, or when it's hot, hitting balls, if that's what you want to do is be a golfer, or out on the practice field, getting in physically in great shape so you can be a football player or shooting a lot of basketball, spending your time on the basketball court and putting a lot of practice. It's not easy, but nothing in life is easy. So one of our other episodes, I'm an avid golfer and um, I made a, a, brought up an interview that Rory McIlroy had had, and I'd like to bring up another one to that point. And it was Ben Hogan because you brought up the hitting balls. And Ben Hogan said that if you go out and hit 500 balls, then you're exactly where you left off the next day. So if you don't hit any more than that, you're not going to improve at all. 10,000 hours thing uh, kind of prompted me of a, another interview we did with Adam Robinson, who talked about the 10,000 hours and how to possibly speed those up. We talked about how important we find reading and, you know, from the Green Notebook does their their um, reading list they send out. And uh, his comment was that I think you should read one book 10,000 times or one book 500 times instead of reading 500 books once. What are your thoughts on that? Are you somewhere in the middle? Or, I mean, he just, his point was basically, if you read one book 500 times, you'll get more out of it than just kind of foraging through it and, and forgetting a lot of what you read. Yeah, so it's about deep learning also instead of deep practice. That's the talent code we're talking about, deep learning. So I would be more inclined with, you have to read the book 500 times and really digest it. I'm a huge fan of From the Green Notebook. What Joe Byerly and the rest of the team has done with that. Um, I'm, I'm not just a fan, but my mother is a fan. So she's a subscriber and she periodically will, will write something back to Joe. It's something that's needed. The post that you put on there every weekend and, and then the monthly reading list helps me figure out which books I need to be reading. If I really want to start getting deep into a book, first I'll, I'll listen to it on an audiobook. And sometimes at a little bit higher pace, uh, I can speed it up a little bit, get through the book. But if it's really, really good, I'll end up buying it. The last book that I did that was General Martin Dempsey's uh, book, No Spectators Allowed, and uh, was a phenomenal book, a short read, but something that I felt was buy-worthy. So I not only bought the audio book, but I also went out and bought the book because there's some things I really wanted to highlight and then put my own comments in on the margins. And then uh, go back and reflect upon, uh, reflect on those on those words that uh, General Dempsey had put into his book. So, how important is failure in development? You talk a lot about developing your people and leaving a legacy. How important is failure in that learning process to you? I think you have to train in a realistic environment, and it's got to be a re an environment where you are going to fail and it's going to challenge you. One of the things that I have learned in the thirty-one years that I've got to be prepared to fail and accept failure, learn from it, move past it, and then ensure that I don't do it again. In a lot of ways, I don't know if I call it failure as much as I would call it, I didn't live up to my own expectation. There's times where I've, I walk into a meeting, I feel underprepared. And that's because of, in, in some ways, laziness on my part. I didn't 
get in front of the, you know, as I looked at my calendar five days out, I didn't get in front of it and actually say, okay, on this day, I need to make sure I have a read ahead. So I'm prepared and I either rehearsed it or I have looked at not only the talking points, but also I have digested those talking points so that I can go in there and discuss it. And maybe I'm not the expert in the room, but at least I have to have a, a level of knowledge that is able to convey a certain message to the others that are listening. Your accomplishments in life are, you know, uh, the percentages in the, I imagine 1%, you know, what you, the rank that you've gained and the, the things you've done with your, your career. Were you born for this? Were you a natural born leader or have you just really put in, you know, so much effort to develop yourself that you've become what, you know, you, you're striving to be? Well, I mean, so for me, I mean, I think you learn and you're never born. Uh, you're not a born leader. You have to develop over many years. The examples that were set for me as a child growing up in a great household with a mom and dad who loved me really taught me the, you know, going back to Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People with the first book in 1983 or 84 that I received from my, from my mom. And, and there she talks about the seven habits. Uh, the eighth habit is basically giving back and sharing your knowledge and giving it back and passing it along. So now there's eight habits, but um, seven habits spoke volumes to me about goal setting, about you've got to know where you want to go, what impact you want to have on people's lives. So at a very young age, I had parents who were already influencing me, who were already laying the groundwork, and then just built upon itself from the first drill sergeant. I had Michael Breelove back in 1989 to the leaders that I had either in the 82nd, but really when I got to the third special forces group and then the follow on assignment over to JSOC was just the leadership, the leaders, the example that they, they set every single day. I just picked up on that and I observed them and that kind of shaped me to who I am today. Well, I can speak personally to that because I, you know, I worked for you at JSOC and I remember when I first got there, I had a, um, housewarming, um, if you will, because I was new to the command and I invited everybody in the J5. And I'll be honest, I didn't expect you to show up, but <laughs> you showed up and you showed up and you engaged and you spoke to me, like you said. So the things that you're talking about here, you, I can vouch for that personally, that you, you implement them, you don't just say them. So, And I think that's important for people to see. Well, thanks, Jacob. I mean, I never turned down a free meal. So <laughs> I, once I heard you're having food and, and drink, I was going to be there for sure. But no, um, a lot of times being an engaged leader, you do get tired. It's hard in some ways. It's, I mean, when I say it's hard, it's not hard. It's you're emotionally exhausted from sharing yourself and then trying to pull from the other person that you're talking to kind of what their likes and dislikes are. And you're trying to learn a lot from them. So you're really, you're focused, you're actively listening. Also, you're stimulating the emotional side of yourself in order to, one, share something with that other person. And it does become, you do get tired and a little emotionally tired at the end of an hour and a half session, but you feel so much better. In a lot of ways, what I tell my teammates is I get so much more from this than you ever could imagine. I am truly the one that is is benefiting from this interaction that we are having. As leaders, we've got to have those times where you're able to just have a conversation and enjoy listening to the other person and, and interacting that way. How do you deal with that stress and, and emotional buildup that you spoke about? I mean, this is not just for leaders, but for people in general, you know, when they're feeling stress, what are some ways that you could suggest that um, you can deal with that, that stress and that emotion? 
one way for me is I get up and do a little bit of meditation. I try to get up around 4.30 or 5 in the morning. It's the quiet time in the house. Pour a cup of coffee out of the French press. Meditate on things that are important to me. I also found on audiobooks something that's free. They've got Reset Your Day Meditation. They're very short breathing exercises that, you know, there's 12 different episodes. So, you know, it's over in 15 or 20 minutes and sometimes even less just to kind of reset your mind or reset the clock that's inside of you in a lot of ways. It's, it's getting yourself to reset and focus on what's really important because sometimes things do become chaotic. So many things that are going on in the house before you leave to go to the office or there's so much going on when you come back home at the end of the day that you've got to reset yourself. The other thing, though, is I learned from really from all three leaders that I'd mentioned already, the McChrystals, the McCravens, and the Millers, that physical fitness is so important. Uh, There's a great book called Lead Yourself First by Raymond Kethledge. In that book, Lead Yourself First, the very first chapter, they talk about physical fitness, getting out, uh, walking or running or doing some type of physical activity resets you, really gets you kind of focused and all your anxieties and all the things that you may uh, be thinking about that it's waiting for you at the office is immediately blown away. And, uh, you know, you're not focused on those things. So great book, Lead Yourself First. I look at those books, one, to just to see if I'm doing all the right things. They're not, they're definitely not the holy grail, but they're, you know, getting all sorts of different opinions from experts and then piecing those together. But, you know, watching how General Miller was able to use his kind of battle rhythm and watching how physical fitness one only not only strengthened his body but it also really strengthened his mind with the uh and, and sometimes the burdens of command was impressive yeah i haven't read the book but i'll, I'll certainly check it out uh, one of the things that i try to do when i exercise is to not think about my day ahead and to not think about those stresses of life to just really if you're running just one step at a time be in the moment of running uh, and if you're going to exercise not just to go out and think about all of the stressful things that are going on while you're exercising, because that does defeat the purpose a bit. But I think that's a fantastic advice to get out, get active and help your body and your mind. Yeah, I think the uh, one one of the books that Joe Barley has talked about, and even uh, back when we were working together, he was a big fan of Donald Robertson's book, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. And so I ended up getting a, um, you know, an audio uh, version of it. And uh, was just completely, you know, impressed with all the different emperors of the Roman Empire and how they use Stoicism and and locked into Stoicism from Marcus Aurelius to Epictetus to to others, and just kind of wanted to look and see kind of how did they do it. I mean, Marcus Aurelius talks about it in Meditations, his book, kind of a journal uh, that he had, pretty deep, honest. If you, if you ever read Meditations, but a lot of great techniques and tactics and procedures that you can pull out and use for yourself. I also have a great app that I keep on my phone that um, I once in a while will look at. It's called the Stoic and you just pull it up and, and they'll have a they'll have a, a quote for one of the, the great Stoics of our time. You know, Epictetus, uh, who was another Greek Stoic philosopher, will kind of, you know, you can see what he was thinking about over two millennia ago. Stoicism, pretty good. Helps you out, meditates and levels you out. So Epictetus, was he the one that his um, his ship crashed uh, in Athens? Yes. Or was it? Okay. So that perfect segue then into that. I, I found it fascinating that he talks about the fact that he thought that his family business was now ruined and he was somewhere new, that 
you know, it re- he didn't know what was going to happen with his life. And have you ever been in a situation like that where you thought initially maybe this is something tragic, this is something, you know, bad, but it ended up turning to be turning into a blessing of some sort? So I commanded in Afghanistan as a as a captain, a major, and a and a lieutenant colonel. And so for me as a SOTA commander, special operations task force commander, as a lieutenant colonel, I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about tragedy. Uh, especially if you lose someone out on the at these austere fire bases when you lose someone or if you get someone who uh, has been wounded in combat and they're coming back to the to the hospital that was located at Bagram I remember initially you know I was kind of like we got to get down to the hospital we got to see them coming uh, to the hospital as they come off the medevac flight and then after a 6 or a 7 month rotation and the numerous trips that I made to the down to the uh, Bagram hospital I started almost getting to the point where I didn't want to make that trip because every time that I went there, uh, I would see our my soldiers, uh, my CSM, J.C. Crenshaw, and I would go down there every single time and wait for the medevac to show up. And I just was started having kind of a, a little bit of an anxiety about what am I going to see when they come off the helicopter? I almost got to the point where I never wanted to make that trip anymore, but I knew it was important and, and really the my CSM at the time it was a phenomenal command sergeant major, but he was—he's also a phenomenal person, and a and a great man. Would say, no, we've got to get down there. They've got to see you, and they've got to see me. So I'd go down there, and, and as they would roll, be rolled in there from the medevac into the emergency room, and then you know we're taking their equipment off of them, taking all their their weapons and all that, and we're handing them off to our guys as they're there, and then watching. In some cases, guys get their chest cracked open. And the doctors are doing unbelievable work on them to keep them alive. Yeah, it weighed on me and it was difficult because sometimes you would not, they would not emerge out of the emergency room alive. And that was difficult for me to see. But I also knew as a leader, I needed to be there. I needed to be a part of it. And so tragedy, I recognized was there at that hospital, but I also knew that I had to be there to be with them. I can't imagine how difficult that could be for someone who really puts such personal effort into into leading people. It kind of goes into my next question as well, though. Do you consider yourself a modern-day Stoic? Well, Jacob, I, I mean, I think the goal of Stoicism is to live a life of virtue, which means living a life of service, compassion, and goodwill towards other beings. Yes, then I guess. I mean, I am a Catholic. Spirituality is very important to me. It's definitely important to my family, being a Catholic is something I'm proud of. Uh, Remember, I mean, I said my number one goal uh, out of the five, my number one goal or my number one value, excuse me, is is faith. Sometimes that is a bar that I try to set high. That is something that's aspirational. I have to have a goal and be strong in my faith. And that's why I made it my number one value. I think spirituality is important. Having a moment to, uh, and it doesn't matter what you believe in, but you've got to believe in something. It helps you get through the difficult times. The, the power of prayer for me and the rosary helped me out enormously uh, in difficult times. There's a great kind of a segue here, but into a, a gentleman that lives out in, uh, past Pinehurst and Seven Lakes that uh, myself and Major General Brennan have uh, sat down with. His name is Ray Lambert. And Ray is 99 years old. And he actually, this month on the 26th, I believe, November, will turn 100 years old. And he is a D Day survivor. About a month, maybe a month and a half ago, General Brennan and myself and Chuck Delliott, who's a good friend of ours, 
And I took my 11-year-old son, Jacob, also uh, uh, along with us because I wanted him to meet Ray because the story that Ray tells is so powerful. I'll keep it short because we spent about two hours with him. And then I went out the following week with my, with my son again and really to have more of a deeper conversation about life. And having Ray spend an hour with my son and talk about kind of after D-Day and the 11 months that he spent in uh, traction and then learning how to walk again and then going home with only $275 to his name and, and reconnecting with his wife and meeting his son that he had not met because he had been deployed was pretty powerful. And I wanted my son to, to also hear that, what it was like growing up in the 20s in Alabama and then coming back as a wounded veteran and then getting your life restarted. I wanted my son to talk up, you know, I wanted Ray to talk to my son about resilience and what that means to him because Ray's story is phenomenal. Not only did he uh, was on uh, the invasion of North Africa and was wounded there, but he also was on the, uh, the invasion of Sicily. And then following that, he was sent to England and trained up. And he was a medic, of course, in the army. And then from there, he was on the first wave that hit Omaha Beach and was wounded at every one of those from North Africa and Sicily and then four times at Omaha Beach uh, as he was wading through the, the shore, picking up dead bodies or flipping over bodies to see if they were alive or if they were dead, hearing his story. And then when a Higgins boat ran up on him and, and it dropped its, its door and it landed right on top of him and broke his back. And he was basically being held underwater as he was attending to a, a soldier who was alive that he flipped over. At that moment, Ray was ready to take his last breath. And he prayed and he said, Lord, let me stay alive so I can save this soldier so I can keep him alive. And then all of a sudden the Higgins boat door raises and he pops up and he's able to save that soldier's life. And to hear that is, is pretty powerful. And, and the mind of Ray and, and, and just how sharp he is at a, almost 100 years old impressed me the most. And then the effect that uh, his spirituality had at a moment and a time in his life when he needed it was pretty powerful. And so it's important that you have spirituality, that you, that you believe in something. And so that has been very important to me. In our past episode, again, we talked to Adam Robinson, and he said, if you want to get out of depression to help people, and he said that's the number, one of the best ways to do it is to just get out there and go help somebody. And, and it sounds like you're, you're in line with that philosophy as well. It is. I mean, it, it goes back to my core purpose in life, live a values-based life, totally focused on family, helping those who can't help themselves. Helping those who can't help themselves doesn't mean that they, it could be anyone that you're helping. I could do better, to be honest with you, at helping others. When I self-reflect and I assess myself and could I be doing more, of course I could be doing more every single day. The mentoring, probably mentored up to 100, a little bit over 100 officers and NCOs throughout my last eight years, and I feel like I'm helping them. It definitely is helping me, and it's about giving back, giving of your time. And that's where I want, the point I want to make in this podcast is really it's about engaged leadership and being a leader where you take the time to have that conversation, to really get to know your people. That's what Bob Chapman does with not only in his book, but also there's a great video on YouTube that you can type in. It's Everybody Matters. It's about 10 minutes long. And I've used that video multiple times because in a very succinct way, Bob lays out that we are in a crisis, a crisis of leadership. 88%, he uses facts and figures, but he says 88% of the workforce believe that they work for a company or for a person that doesn't care about them. 
that is what I'm trying to do in this case is say, look, I do care about you. I want to know everything about you and how can I help you? Where are you passionate? How can I help promote you and not promote in the, in the sense of rank, but how can I promote you to achieve those results that you're looking for? A lot of times people don't, uh, nobody asks them what they're passionate about. And what you'll find if you ask them is they've got a lot of things that they're passionate about. And you may be able to help them, especially in a command like First Special Forces Command that's got 23,000 uh, soldiers and civilians that make up this great organization. There's probably a role or a function that uh, we could fit them in that where they are more passionate, they're going to even do more good for the organization. You know, you're definitely one of the first leaders for me that really pushed reading and it stuck with me. And I've always enjoyed reading somewhat, but I, you know, after working for you, I found out how important it was and I've really implemented it into my life. I really appreciate you sitting down and sharing all of these, you know, I mean, this was a great conversation. Um, uh, it was really good to hear your take on some of these things and, and appreciate the honesty and sharing some of your you know, leadership styles and some of your personal beliefs as well with us. I'll just end it. And I think you, you've kind of covered this a lot, but you know, you got me on Simon Sinek and, and he talks about the golden circle and start with why, and you know, when it comes to general marks, what is, what exactly is your why? I mean, it goes back to what I've, I've said is the why for me is helping those who can't help themselves. Nietzsche said, he who has a why to live can bear almost anyhow. I think Simon used that somewhat when he wrote his book, start with why. If you know what your why is, if you know what your purpose in life is, uh, no matter what life throws at you, you will be able to do I mean, unbelievable things. But you got to know what your why is. You know, the whole Simon Sinek's TED Talk on the Golden Circle had an impact on me. Uh, you know, he talks about that most of us know what we do. Some of us know how we do, but very few of us know why we do what we do. And those that know that are the ones that inspire others. What I found in my time in the Army is that leaders like General McChrystal, Admiral McRaven, General Miller, they knew their why. They knew their purpose in life, and they were able to communicate it. They were able to communicate it from the inside out, starting with why. And that's what it boils down to. It's the Golden Circle TED Talk was a great way to explain that everyone must know their why, and you've got to communicate it. And you've got to be passionate about it. And you have to show empathy and compassion. And you have to convey that to the people that you lead. That's the importance of the why statement. Yeah, I think that's a great, great point as well. Be genuine about it. And that's the, you know, that's the part that's important to people who you are leading is as long as you're genuine, then a lot of times you can get away with some other shortcoming. Um, yeah. I mean, John Maxwell, another he's not a motivational speaker as much as he's just a, uh, a leadership theorist. He said, be authentic. People don't want a leader who's always right. They want a leader who's always real. And that's what we have to do. And I think the army and the army, we're doing that. I think the leaders that I see are being authentic, but it has to, to be authentic. You've got to know who you are and what you stand for and what values are most important to you and what your purpose in life is. And then you've got to communicate it up front and they've got to know it so that at the end of your, if you're a commander for two years, at the end of it, you don't want your people to find out what you're passionate about, what your purpose is. You want to communicate that in the first 90 seconds of your conversation with your command. Don't wait till the end. Do it at the beginning 
and you'll find out that they will follow you, blood, sweat, and tears, not for a paycheck, not for awards, but they will follow you because they are genuinely uh, behind you 110%. Well, again, I, I thank you so much for sitting down with us and being part of this podcast. And, you know, sorry, Joe couldn't be here to join us today, but he's actually doing some leadership training as we speak. So I appreciate you sitting down. This was great. I, I could. I know I'm going to go back and listen to this a bunch of times and, and pull from it um, in the future. So, Jacob, I do appreciate it, and for um, for the audience, I appreciate you taking the time to listen to this podcast. Hopefully, you've found something in it that was beneficial. Hopefully, for some of you, if you're here at Fort Bragg and or past cross, please come up and and share with me your statement, what your purpose is, your why statement. I'm always interested and intrigued. And uh, I always have time for each and every one of you. So thanks again, Jacob. Yeah, congratulations on your success and, and obviously the best with uh, your future endeavors. Thank you. So thank you again to all our listeners and thank you for joining us. And please join us next week. Make sure you check us out at uh, fromthegreennotebook.com. You can read posts, listen to past episodes of the podcast, subscribe to the monthly reading list and uh, Sunday email. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at FTGNNotebook and Facebook and Instagram as well. Finally, please subscribe to the podcast and give us five stars on iTunes if you like what we're doing here so you can help us get From the Green Notebook out to more listeners. So I'm Jacob Goronsky signing off, and we hope to see you next week.